Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. I am Aliza Pearl, and I'll be hosting this episode where we're talking about viruses and pandemics. And I'd love to have our guests introduce ourselves, starting with Sherry. Hi, my name's Sherry. I'm so excited to be on the podcast, uh, Women at Warp. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Well, I've been a Star Trek fan, you know, since I was a young child, and I grew up watching The Next Generation, and it was definitely an influence on my decision to pursue both my education and my career in the sciences. Now, as far as my education goes, I hold a Bachelor of Science degree with a double major in biology and biotechnology and a master's degree in biochemistry. Over the course of my research uh, studies, I generally worked in the field of molecular genetics, where I used different recombinant DNA technologies to alter the genetic makeup of different organisms and then study their effects. Once I completed my academic studies, that's when I began working for the Canadian federal government. Initially, I did work in a research lab, but I quickly moved to my current area of work, which is in the regulatory sciences. So I work as a scientific evaluator where I review the manufacturing and the quality control data that is submitted by pharmaceutical companies to support the approval of vaccines and other biologically derived drugs for sale in Canada. So for those of you from the U.S., essentially I work for the equivalent of the U.S. FDA. And that's me in a nutshell. Amazing. So yeah. Sherry is, if you couldn't tell, Sherry is our resident scientist for this episode. All right, Grace, tell us who you are. <laughs> I'm Grace. I've been podcasting for about 10 years now. I love Star Trek. And one time in science class, I dissected a chicken wing. <laughs> Fantastic. Sue, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm Sue, and I think my last biology class was sometime around 1996. So, <laughs> Perfect. Yes, this is going to be really fun. I'm also not a scientist. I'm an artist who loves science. We're, we're just going to talk about these episodes as fans. And as people living through a pandemic, because, you know, we're not experts in pandemics, but now we know what it's like to live through one. Mm -hmm. So before we get started in our discussion topic, here's the housekeeping we have to do. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. And starting in January 2021, we're adjusting some of our tiers and adding some new rewards. So visit us over at patreon.com slash women at warp to check out those new tiers. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, we're regularly curating new designs for our Tee Public store. You can find t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, masks, and more at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp. And so now let's start talking about viruses and pandemics. So Star Trek has explored stories with viruses and pandemics many, many times before. But now that we're living through a pandemic, we thought we would revisit those episodes and talk through them with an expert. Of the viruses and pandemics in Trek we'll discuss today, there's basically three categories that emerged. So we have medical mistakes, bioweapons, and survival tactics. There, you know, of course, there are there might be some viruses and pandemics in Star Trek stories that are organic or naturally occurring in nature. We actually thought of another episode this morning that has an organic virus, but we're not going to talk about those today. So this is not a comprehensive episode on all the viruses and all the pandemics in Star Trek. I hope to do another episode where we just keep digging into these. But just so you know, we didn't forget your favorite episode. Hopefully we'll get to it in another episode. <laughs> So to start us off, before we get into the specific episodes, Sherry, I want to know, and we want to know as co-hosts, what does the general public and the media tend to get wrong the most about viruses, pandemics, and vaccines? You know, that's it's a tough question. Kind of what I see is confusion around different terms that are used when we speak about viruses, pandemics, and vaccines. And it's evident in the episodes we're going to be talking about today. So, you know, we hear terms like antigen, 
we hear terms like a vaccine or an antiviral medication and sort of understanding the differences between those can be difficult, I think, for the general public. So, you know, one example, you know, and it comes through in one of the episodes here is where, you know, they talk about using an antigen to kill a virus. Mm-hmm. So an antigen cannot kill a virus. An antigen is something that activates your immune system and helps you to develop antibodies that then can bind the virus and help you clear the infection. So mm-hmm. that's a general, I think, a common mistake that is made in the broader media around the pandemic. I think the other top category would be the mode of transmission of a virus. And we are also going to be talking about this. I think, you know, it's this idea of an airborne virus versus a virus that's transmitted through droplets, through respiratory droplets. So an understanding of the difference between those, I think, is important and is often, you know, mixed up. Is, isn't that the case, though, too, with vaccines? I feel like a lot of people think about a vaccine as a cure. But in my memory, a vaccine is something you get when you're healthy to train your immune system how to fight the virus if it comes in contact with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The vast majority of vaccines are prophylactic vaccines, meaning that you have to be administered the vaccine before your body encounters the virus. And typically you need, you know, several days to several weeks to develop the immunity after you receive the vaccine. And often you need multiple doses of a vaccine in order to develop that immunity. So you're right. Once you've become infected with the virus, administering a vaccine at that point is not likely to help you fight off the infection. We do have a few examples of vaccines that can be administered very early on in an infection that do have a benefit. An example of that would be the rabies vaccine. Interesting. Is there such a thing as a cure for a virus? I guess I mean something that a scientist could create in a lab that we then administer to someone who is ill that does the killing of the virus for them. Yeah, absolutely. So we have what's called convalescent plasma therapy. So this is where we take the blood of individuals who have successfully fought off the viral infection and in their blood is contained antibodies that they developed, which help them to fight off the viral infection. And so what we do is we purify out the plasma component of the blood of those individuals and we infuse it into individuals that have a current infection. And so those antibodies from that other person are then infused into their system and able to bind the virus and clear the infection for them. So this this is a, a therapy that is used for many different viral diseases. Cool. And is that something that could happen or will happen for COVID-19? It is being used for COVID-19. I know it is being given to patients with very severe disease. And I know here in Canada, our Canadian Blood Services has ads out on our on our local radio stations asking for people, have you have you been infected by COVID-19? And they're looking for people to donate their blood so that they can purify out the plasma and use it to help treat people with active infections. Yeah, I just realized I have seen those in the US. I've seen some TV ads. So that, you know, that's a different category. So when we talk about vaccines, that's considered active immunization. When we talk about the use of convalescent plasma, that's called passive immunization. So it's not long lasting because you're just transfusing the antibodies from another person into another individual. And those antibodies will not remain in your system. It will not create any sort of immune memory. So that individual, if they were to encounter the disease a second time, they would not be immune to it. 
because their body didn't create those antibodies. Exactly. Huh. Mm. I feel smarter already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already learning so much today. <laughs> yep, this is amazing. <laughs> cool. Well, great. Let's let's jump into these episodes and see how much techno babble is actually based in real science. So, the first episode we're going to talk about is the TNG episode Genesis, which has a virus that is officially called Barclay's Protomorphosis Syndrome, aka the de-evolution virus. So, I'll do a quick summary of this episode to refresh people's memories. Lieutenant Barclay has a mild case of the Eurodelin flu, which Dr. Crusher treats using a synthetic T-cell to activate a gene in him that will help his body fight the flu naturally. Then, strange symptoms and behavior start popping up all over the rest of the crew. Things like aggression, lethargy, hyperactivity, temperature dysregulation, and brain fog. And then, of course, we might all remember, the crew starts de-evolving into various, like, animals and... How could we forget? (laughs) How could we forget the visuals of this episode? There's proto-humanoids, there's insects, there's arachnid versions of people. Data and Picard then return to the ship from an away mission, and they find the crew all not the crew. Data analyzes Riker's data and discovers that the synthetic T-cell has invaded his genes and activated latent introns, new word for me, which are genetic sequences that have been long dormant. So Data uses amniotic fluid from the pregnant nurse Ogawa to create a retrovirus that will then neutralize the synthetic T-cell and reverse the de-evolution. He administers this treatment by flooding the ship with a gas that contains the retrovirus. Special thanks to Memory Alpha for helping me summarize this concisely. (laughs) God bless you, Memory Alpha. What would we do without you? A lot more research. (laughs) (laughs) We'd do a lot more work. (laughs) So the first question I have for Sherry here is what type of treatment would the retrovirus data creates here be called? Okay, so data is retrovirus. So it would most likely be classified as a gene therapy. So what a gene therapy does is it can replace a gene that is causing a medical problem with one that doesn't. It can add genes to help the body fight or treat a disease, or it can be used to turn off a gene that is causing a problem. And retroviruses are a really great vehicle for delivering genetic material into human cells. And we do have several approved gene therapies that use retroviruses as the vector to deliver the genetic material. So, you know, my best guess at what information is provided in the, in the episode is that, you know, data's retrovirus is a gene therapy and it does likely does two different things. First, I think it needs to contain the genetic sequence that codes for the antibody from Nurse Ogawa's amniotic fluid, right? So then this would allow the person that receives the retrovirus to then express that antibody and fight off the infection. The other thing this gene therapy would have to do is it would need to contain a series of genetic sequences that would effectively turn off the activated introns. So in a way to stop the disease process. So in real life, how long would creating something that does that take? Because, you know, they do it within the course of of an hour or two in the episode. Got to wrap it up for prime time. (laughs) Yeah. The clinical development of a new therapy can take a decade. Wow. The, you know, because, you you know, there's the research and preclinical development components, and then you move into clinical trials where you're looking at safety. You're also looking at proper dosing. And then finally, you're looking at the efficacy of the, of the therapy. So that, you know, that can take anywhere five to 10 years wow. to go through that. For vaccines, it can be much longer. And then we talk about just the manufacturing time. So once you mm-hmm. have a product that works, now we have to think about manufacturing. And a lot of these products take weeks to months to manufacture. So, you know, a standard vaccine 
you know, would typically take, say, six months from the start of the manufacturing process to a finished vial containing the vaccine. Thank God data has that super speed then. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, in the Star Trek universe, we don't have to worry about funding. And because <laughs> mm-hmm. of replicators, we don't have to worry about manufacture time. Mm-hmm. Unless it's one of those substances that for some plot reason can't be replicated. But I mean, we we never do see anybody, any of the doctors talking about like, well, this should go to trials first. They just Mm -hmm. distribute it to the entire ship. (laughs) That was something that I was weirdly really uh, cognizant of while doing the rewatches for this episode in each of these, just stopping and being like, okay, well, how many hoops are they needing to jump through to make this happen? In the point between knowing there's a problem and being able to implement something to fix or help that problem. Because that we've we've all been seeing a lot of that in the news, and it, it's been at the forefront of all our minds the past couple months. Right, totally. It's I think we all have just this like new awareness of how these things work, and so revisiting these virus and pandemic episodes, it re- I hope like listeners will also rewatch these because it's amazing to see how cognizant we are of like how pandemics work now. And and when we originally watched these episodes, we we're like, oh, yep, okay, that's how it works. And it's like, oh, no, this is kind of different than, it's not even just the sci-fi element that's different. It's also like the mechanics of living through a pandemic. We now see where the writers were just kind of creating the fiction of that. Mm-hmm. The other science question I had about this episode, Sherry, was about introns. That was a word I didn't know existed. <laughs> Rewatching this episode, I was like, oh, introns. It, I thought it was technobabble, but it's not. They're, introns are a real thing. And so they're these genetic sequences that are dormant in, in DNA. So is it really possible in real life to activate introns? Yeah, so the short answer is yes. You can, what? you know, quote, unquote, <laughs> activate Intron. What is an intron? Yeah. We need an intro to introns. <laughs> okay. So in some genes, not all of the DNA sequence is used to make the end product, which is a protein. Okay. So you have introns are the non-coding sections of the gene. So the sort of initial steps of gene expression, the first thing that's going to happen is transcription. So you're going to transcribe your DNA into RNA. And that's going to contain both the coding sequence for the protein as well as the introns. And so what happens is in this messenger RNA, in its premature state, it contains both the exons, the coding regions, as well as the introns. And then before that messenger RNA is translated into a protein, it undergoes a process called RNA splicing. And this is a process that involves removing or splicing out those intron sequences. Oh. Okay. And so, you know, it occurs in, in several different steps and it is catalyzed by a spliceosome complex, which is a complex of uh, many proteins and RNA. And so, you know, to quote unquote a- activate an intron, what you sort of mechanism to do this would be to disrupt or mutate the genetic sequences involved in splicing. So there are within both exons and introns, there are these splicing sites which target the spliceosome to perform that cut. And so you, you could effectively mutate those and that would result in those introns being maintained in the final messenger RNA, which would then be translated and produce a mutated protein. Wow. Okay. So the thing is though, are there introns in us that like if they were expressed, they would make us turn into frogs? (laughs) That's my question. Final question. And if so, do we get to have any say over we tr- whether we turn into a frog or a puddle or a giant spider, Barclay critter? Yeah, so that part of it is pretty far-fetched. <laughs> okay, just checking, just checking. I'm still gunning for spider creature. 
I think I would want to be a frog for real. Like, yeah, seems kind of chill. Uh, as long as you have enough water to live in. That's true. I would go for a bird. I want to fly. <sighs> yeah. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah. I don't think they had the budget for anyone to devolve into a bird, though. I think it's really interesting, though, what the very science fiction-y aspect of the, the de-evolution implies for our characters, right? It implies that Betazoids were at one point amphibious, or that... I guess Barkley is not fully human because he is an arachnid while I guess Riker is supposed to be Neanderthal. <laughs> and I mean, the Klingon de-evolution just is like a scarier Klingon. It seems. <laughs> but I mean, the, the speculating on this is truly just speculation because what a ridiculous virus. But wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't we be able to assume that the de-evolution, if you can call it that, is at the same rate? So like at the time in supposed history, like length of time ago, that this is what all of our Star Trek races evolved from? Am I even making sense? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Like if it's, if it's 20,000 years ago. Right, that Betazoids were frogs. Wouldn't it also be twenty thousand years ago that Barkley was a, whatever Barkley is, if not fully human, was an arachnid? That one of Barkley's ancestors was bitten by a radioactive spider. Right, totally. <laughs> Calling it now, it's canon. Yeah, <laughs> he's Spider Man. Barkley is Spider Man. Yes, the Parker family tree goes way back. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I guess in a more concise way, members of the same species wouldn't necessarily be de-evolving to different points along the evolutionary chain. Well, that makes me think that we, like, in, you know, in the science fiction of this episode, they're basically saying that humanoids have multiple introns from multiple various proto-versions of, mm. of humanoid, right? Because, like, yeah, I think I hear what you're saying. So different ones could be activated in different people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So okay. Barclay okay. has the pro, he might have the proto humanoid and the arachnid, but the arachnid is the one that got activated. That's interesting. That's the sense that I got that it was sort of the activation of the introns wasn't specific. It was more of a random event. And so that's how you got the de evolution to different species between the different crew members. I like this explanation way better than what my brain was doing. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we science the science fiction, because it's very satisfying. Okay, so let's move on to the next virus. And this is actually a virus that has had a life that spans many episodes and multiple series. This is the infamous Klingon mutagenic virus, a.k.a. the Klingon augment virus. This was, I think, a pretty spectacular retcon of the original series having smooth foreheaded Klingons that don't look like the ridge foreheaded Klingons of the future of TNG, DS9, Voyager era. If, if I can play devil's advocate, I kind of <laughs> wish they had left it alone because I mm. thought, you know, in Trials and Tribulations, worth just saying, we don't talk about it, was much funnier. (laughs) (laughs) That is also wonderful. I love that moment. (laughs) Yeah, I love both. So I I hear you, but I also still (laughs) love this retcon. (laughs) Fair. That's fair. I respect the moxie of the retcon. (laughs) No, I I feel you though. Yeah, that is a very brilliant moment. We don't talk about that. (laughs) So here's a little bit of info from Memory Alpha for those of you who need a refresher. The Klingon augment virus was a hybridized form of Levodian flu, another flu coming into play here. So many flus. (laughs) Right. Space is a flu problem. Right. Oh my God, space flu. Space flu is reckless. (laughs) So this (laughs) Levodian flu threatened to wipe out the Klingon race in the mid-22nd century. It was inadvertently created by Klingon researchers who were attempting to bioengineer enhanced warriors using DNA from genetically modified human embryos left over from Earth's eugenics wars. So that's a mouthful. Basically just saying Klingons created this by mistake. And throughout this story arc, so we have like the TOS Klingons established with smooth foreheads. And then Enterprise does two episodes 
in season four, which are Affliction and Divergence, episodes 15 and 16, where they show what happened and why Klingons then got this mutation of smooth foreheads. Okay, we talked about how we all feel about this retcon. Although, actually, I don't know if we heard, like, Sherry, what do you think about this retcon? Do you think it was worth it? Should they have just left it alone, like Sue says? (laughs) Yeah, I think they could have just left it alone. (laughs) I don't know that we needed the explanation. It was a a fun, you know, science fiction episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you, Grace? What are your thoughts? Again, I appreciate the moxie of the retcon. There's so many things that Enterprise has like attempted to change the canon on or the continuity on. And this is one that I was actually like, okay, you're actually you're actually trying to put a solid explanation behind that. I, I respect that a little bit. The episodes themselves get pretty silly, I will say. Especially the part when Trip is on like a rope connecting two separate spaceships. That was kind of like <laughs> Why is this happening? Is the main (laughs) plot not interesting enough? Yeah, I think my only major critique of these episodes is that there was just a little bit too much going on. Yeah, they turned this this primary concept into their kind of their B plot. And that felt weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. It it felt like a B plot. And then there was also Malcolm being put in the brig because he's getting contacted by his old secret Starfleet. I guess it was Section 31 contact. and. Yeah, it was just a lot. It was just a lot going on in these episodes. But anyway, going back to the science of it, my first science question, Sherry, is so mutagenic viruses do exist. So so yeah, I guess then that means it's possible for a virus to change our genetic makeup enough to change our appearance? So no. So oh. <laughs> I mean to you know, to change our appearance that drastically, I would say mm-hmm. no. So when I say, you know, do mutagenic viruses exist? What I mean is there are viruses that can cause mutations as a result mm. of us being infected by them. You know, we don't really see any real life examples where, you know, as a result of a viral infection, we have, you know, a visible change in our appearance. Sort of the only one I can think of is mumps. So mm-hmm. when you get sick with mumps, you know, you get the characteristic sort of bulge in the neck area, but that's as a result of the infection. The virus isn't, you know, altering your bone structure mm-hmm. or, you know, pigment in your hair or your skin to create an altered appearance. Right. And the, the opening scene of affliction, like, you see the changes happening in the one Klingon's forehead, mm-hmm. which we're led to believe like those are bones. So like, yeah. his, his bones are reshaping themselves rapidly as we watch. Just melting a little bit in front of us. Yeah. And then what really confused me was when they infected Archer and the <laughs> reverse happened. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He's got just little itty bitty ridges now. <laughs> yeah, so I did not understand how the same virus would cause the, you know, the elimination of ridges in a Klingon, but then in a human would cause the appearance of new ridges. Bacula wanted to wear makeup that week. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, that is confusing. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't even realize that doesn't make much sense, huh? Kind of similar to the last virus we talked about in Genesis. This is one that's rapidly changing genetic, not not just appearance, but like the genetic expression. And I know we already kind of talked about this in Genesis, but what are, do you know of any other real life examples of things that change our genetic expression? And even if it's like over time, you know, you have this virus and then your DNA gets passed down and your grandkids now have pointy ears a little bit or I don't know, <laughs> something like that. So, I mean, there's absolutely, you know, real world examples of viruses that are capable of altering our gene expression. You know, some examples include the herpes simplex virus, the Epstein-Barr virus, and actually the influenza A virus. Whoa. And so if we, you know, take a look at, you know, the herpes viruses, well, 
you know, they encode multiple proteins that can alter our host cell gene expression. And it's normally, you know, more transient in nature. So these viral proteins, they interfere with different aspects that affect gene expression. So they will interfere with the stability of our messenger RNA. So cause degradation, degradation, sorry, of the messenger RNA. They can interfere with splicing, which we talked about previously. And so all of these things have the end effect of altering the way our genes are being expressed, so not being translated into the into uh, proteins. Wow. So it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what kind of expression are we talking about? Like, is it is it going to, I don't know, change someone's hair color? Is it going to, what, what are we expecting to see different? How long till I get gills? <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, you're not going to see anything different. And we see this, you know, of all of the different viruses that infect humans, there's there's um other than mumps, like I explained, there's really no outward changes to a person's, you know, physique or physical appearance when we're infected with a virus. So that aspect is not so plausible. Okay, so it's not a a visible expression in someone's appearance, but it's like how our our cells and our genes are working. Yeah, usually what the virus is doing is it's hijacking your cell's machinery to make copies of its genetic material instead of your own. So it's happening at the cellular level, right? Mm -hmm. So that individual infected cell is no longer expressing the genes it normally would Instead, it's expressing the virus's genes for it. And once the virus is done with it, it exits the cell and essentially, you know, lyses or kills that cell. Got it. But something, you know, I wanted to talk about was for this episode, what I really appreciated was, you know, it was the only time we heard, you know, and it was Flocks where he was kind of pushing back saying, I'm going to need time to come up with a cure. He talks about having to test mm -hmm. the cure for, for the, for the virus. And, you know, that's rarely discussed in Star Trek. Yeah. And that, I mean, that kind of also goes along with uh, what Enterprise was supposed to be, or at least in my thought, like what Enterprise is, it's like the bridge between modern humans and what we know Starfleet to be. Mm -hmm. So there's, they're just like, just that tad bit that's still rooted in our, our like more everyday human existence or I guess Flox is not human but you know what I mean no but I will say that Flox definitely gets some good moments in this series of episodes uh, he rocks it like, yeah now why didn't they treat that more like the a plot yeah yeah <laughs> well we'll we'll be sure to give those notes to them in the past <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to move us to our next category of viruses in this episode which is bioweapons so we have a, f a couple of different examples of viruses in Trek being used to hurt people or prevent people from doing something, trying to hurt the enemy or, or stop the enemy in some way. One of the episodes we're going to talk about is Deep Space Nine, Babel. So that's season one, episode five, where they talk about the aphasia virus. And so this is a virus that was planted by a Bajoran scientist Years before, like back when the station which was built. So I think they said something like with 18 years ago. A Bajoran scientist planted this, a little piece of tech that when attached to the replicator will basically create a virus into the replicated food. It ends up being reactivated by O'Brien when he fixes that replicator. And it affects almost the entire population of Deep Space Nine, causing a lot of people to lose the ability to communicate clear thoughts and connect those thoughts with the proper words. So they just start speaking gibberish. From memory alpha, the virus resided in the temporal lobes of infected individuals and had an adaptive synaptic inhibitor. Its symptoms included speaking in gibberish and the inability to understand language. The virus disrupted the brain's processing of oral and visual stimuli. So what's interesting to me about this episode is 
like I, you know, I'm a member of the chronic illness community. I have a chronic illness that affects my brain sometimes and the way my my brain works. But I know for other people in the chronic illness community with similar symptoms to me, like brain fog and cognitive dysfunction, theirs is caused by viral infection. So I guess my first science question, (laughs) Sherry, is are there real life viruses that act like the aphasia virus and like they go straight for the brain function? There are real life examples of viral infections that induce aphasia. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, an example is the herpes simplex virus, which causes encephalitis. So swelling in in the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's as a result of that, that you then start to see the signs of brain dysfunction. And so that can manifest as, you know, fever, headache, and and confusion. So these Mm -hmm. are all the, you know, some of the, you know, the idea around the confusion is, you know, it is characteristic of aphasia. So it's not the virus itself moving to a specific target in the brain and causing Mm -hmm. the aphasia. It is the overall sort of physiological impact of the viral infection. Yeah. So once again, it's like, there's a core scientific truth in this episode. And this, that, this sounds like what it is. Like it, it actually could be that a virus could cause these types of symptoms. This episode always gets to me because it's, it's not technically virus related, but because of the way my brain is hardwired, when I'm overstimulated or overwhelmed, I, mm-hmm. I do lose the ability to verbalize. And that is the first thing that goes when I'm going into an overwhelmed spiral. So I, that, mm-hmm. So while I laugh at this episode and Avery Brooks's incredibly intense delivery of the word bread, <laughs> it, it, it does hit home a little bit. And the one thing that I don't feel like when you're losing the ability to properly verbalize or express what you're thinking or feeling is that they don't, they could have brought across better, in my personal opinion, is how incredibly frustrating it is mm-hmm. and how that can lead you to come off as like, belligerent and angry and that's just kind of a byproduct of that that you have to deal with as kind of a secondary characteristic of losing the ability to verbalize one of the things Mm -hmm. i remember reading about this episode and i did not double check it so forgive me if i get some small details wrong but either the writers or the actors sat down and figured out what the characters were trying to say Mm -hmm. so that they Mm -hmm. could deliver their quote unquote, gibberish lines Mm -hmm. more effectively. And I I found that really interesting. But also, like, I've seen a few, I'm going to say medical shows, but I think also documentaries (laughs) on aphasia. And it's just, it's very interesting to me that, like, you know, at some level, you, like, know what you want to say, but your brain Mm. is pulling out a different word that for some reason is related to how that word is stored in like the language part of your brain. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I obviously can't explain it well. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Look up aphasia. It's fascinating. That's the irony of aphasia. It's already really hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my second sciencey question about this episode is this. The virus in this episode is spread through food from the replicators at first, but then when it has infected a lot of people on the station, it becomes airborne. So this is a two-part question, Sherry. In real life, what is the determining factor of whether a virus becomes airborne or when it becomes airborne? And then the second part of the question, which I'll just tack on, is there really any difference in a virus like COVID-19 that travels via aerosols versus something that's airborne. I still don't quite understand why we're not just saying COVID-19 is airborne if it travels on aerosols. So what is the difference? Okay, so we can we can talk about that first then. The difference, you know, droplet transmission versus airborne transmission of viruses. So droplet transmission which is, you know, the way the flu is transmitted and the way that COVID-19 is transmitted. You know, this occurs when a person is in close contact uh, with someone 
who has the respiratory symptoms, so coughing or sneezing, and, you know, is therefore at risk of, of being exposed to those uh, respiratory droplets. So and this really has to do, you know, it's where, you know, size matters. So airborne transmission is different from droplet transmission because what it does is it refers to the presence of viruses in particles, so droplet particles that are smaller than five micrometers in diameter. And because the virus is able to survive in particles that small, it can remain, those particles can remain in the air for long periods of time, even after a person has left the room and can be transmitted to other people over distances much longer than a, a couple of meters. So, so that's, that's the difference. It's the ability okay. of the virus to survive on uh, droplets of a specific size and how far those droplets can travel and how long they can remain suspended in the air. Okay. That's, thank you so much. That is the most sense it has made in my brain. And that also makes, you know, it makes sense as to why masks are effective and important because even if it's not airborne, it's still being spread through droplets that travel through the air from our bodies. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so, you know, we can, you know, take um, the, I think the other part of the question was around, you know, the fact that this virus was initially spread through food from the replicators. Mm-hmm. And then once, you know, it infected a lot of people, it became airborne. So, you know, what we're talking about here is viral tropism. So this is the ability of a virus to infect different tissues and different cell types. So usually a foodborne virus is being transmitted through, you know, the oral route and is going to infect the cells of your gastrointestinal system. For an airborne virus, a virus needs to be able to infect the cells of your respiratory system. So for this virus, it would need to acquire a series of mutations that would allow it to infect the cells of the respiratory system. That would be Mm. sort of the first step to becoming airborne. The next step would have to be the improved survivability of that virus in smaller and smaller droplet sizes. So you know, typically we see a lot of viruses that spread through the large droplet transmission. So this is where someone, you know, have to cough or sneeze in close proximity to transmit the virus. But we would need to see again, another host, uh, a whole suite of mutations in this virus for then it to also now be able to survive in these very small droplets and move to an airborne transmission. Wow. And so thankfully, it seems like that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> like, is that is that a fairly rare occurrence for a virus to hit all those mutations perfectly and then become airborne? Yeah, absolutely. There there needs to be a genetic advantage to the mm. mutations, right? So if a virus is, you know, perfectly happy and transmitting easily through, you know, food, or through, you know, direct contact, then there's really no evolutionary pressure on the virus to acquire a mutation to become airborne, you know, and then even if there is a mutation that happens in a a single virus, it needs to then become the dominant Mm. form of that virus to, you know, outcompete its uh, predecessor. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Like, yeah, I feel like my brain just broke open in a new way. Here. <laughs> I, I think I'm mostly amazed that anything ever really truly becomes airborne because yeah. it's very evident that spread through aerosols is pretty effective. Right. <laughs> At least yeah. this year it is. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I wanted to talk about that I think is was never addressed in any of these episodes is this whole concept of disinfection and and sanitization 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're on a, you're on a space station or you're on a starship. It is a confined space in outer space. We have all sorts of chemical disinfectants that we can apply to hard surfaces that we can apply as a fog, a chemical fog to inactivate viruses. And this was something that was never considered in any of the episodes. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. And it's such a, it's amazing because it has been such at at the forefront for us. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. I guess they don't have Lysol wipes in the future. Well, the data in in Genesis, they do release the retrovirus as a gas through the environmental systems. Mm -hmm. Right, but they could have just released a chemical through the system the systems mm. that would just inactivate the virus. You know, viruses, the chemical, we cross-link the proteins, cross-link the DNA. It can no longer infect the cells. So this mm. is a really, you know, fast way of inactivating, you know, virus uh, in, the envir- in the environment. And it's something that is used, you know, sort of in the manufacture of vaccines. You know, they involve, you know, growing a virus uh in a man, in a manufacturing facility and to clean up afterwards and make sure there's no residual virus in the environment there's many different decontamination uh, strategies that are employed currently so the idea that this didn't come up in you know flox didn't think about this bashir didn't think about this it's it's surprising and, and to me it's kind of a a big gap mhm yeah Another thing that I feel like I'm hyper aware of now because of living in through this pandemic is back in the episode, uh, the DS9 episode, Babel, Quark doesn't want to shut down his bar. Yeah. 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 And now, oh my goodness, watching that episode now, you feel that that hits different. Like, (sighs) because literally we're living through this moment where we can't get on the same page in the U.S. at least about whether the economy should keep going at the risk of people or we should, you know, definitively try to contain these outbreaks before reopening. And so Quark not wanting to shut down the bar was like, of course he doesn't. Uh, Dang it. Dang it, Quark. Quark. (laughs) And then there's everybody on DS9 going to Quark's. Yeah, yeah. Because they assume if it's open, it's okay to be there. Right. Yeah, and they were under quarantine order to remain in their personal quarters. Mm-hmm. But everybody's out on the promenade, shopping. Well, no, the shops were closed down. They were all at Quark's. I just want to start screaming. <laughs> I I, I, someone I know actually posted a photo on social media today eating out at a restaurant. Oh, my God. And I just, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. That's all I can say. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you rewatch Babel again, this is it. That That's what it is. <laughs> we have Star Trek. It's canon in Star Trek that people don't want to comply to help shut down a virus pandemic. <laughs> they sure got that right, even yeah. if they got the science wrong. <laughs> How dare you minorly inconvenience me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, it, I mean, also, it is very funny that Quark, is the reason why the virus spread so quickly because mm-hmm. he was using the replicator that was infected. Like, it's just, ugh, there's so many ways that they just chef's kiss. They, they totally <laughs> nailed it in this, in this episode. Well, they also had, well, again, for Babel, the idea of travel restrictions, right? They certainly did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they weren't, and they weren't going to permit anyone to leave or board the station. And then you did have the freighter captain who, you know, is making the argument that his cargo was perishable and he needed to leave the station. So he was fighting the travel restrictions. Yeah. And everybody on my ship seems fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> right. Man. This doesn't affect us. Why do we have to follow these rules? Yeah. Oh. So that was the biogenics category that we're going to discuss. And now the next category is just very hyper-specific to like survival tactics, viruses that are created to help a species survive or like avoid extinction. So just really quickly, we're going to touch on these episodes. 
These are also mutagenic viruses, which we now know what that means. The Enterprise episode Extinction, Season 3, Episode 3. And Voyager episode Favorite Son, Season 3, Episode 20. And of course, the Voyager episode predates the Enterprise episode. They They do have a similar core scientific thing that happens. Which is, so for, once again, thank you Memory Alpha for helping to summarize this. <laughs> a mutagenic virus is created in the Enterprise episode by an alien species called the Locake because they face the threat of extinction. And the point of this virus is to mutate the DNA of any humanoid visitors to their homeworld and turn them into that species and make them want to stay there, make them have this strong desire to visit the home city and want to basically repopulate. And that's how they they re, they tried to repopulate. But of course, sadly, sorry, spoiler, they don't. It didn't work. <laughs> and then uh, from also from Memory Alpha, the Voyager Favorite Sun episode, this other species called the Teresians would lure unsuspecting men, hum, humanoid men, to their world by infecting them with a mutagenic retrovirus that turns them into Teresians. So same thing and plants memories of the Teresian homeworld in their minds. So, just touching on these really briefly. So, my question is about genetic memory. And, because I know I have heard, as an African-American woman, <laughs> I, I have done some reading in the past about, like, generational trauma, and how that's not just passed down in, like, our behavior, in, in our cultures, and the way we, we raise our children, and things like that. It's also like a genetic thing that gets passed down. So I guess my question is, we have this lovely sci-fi story of memories being implanted via genetics, via the genes being changed. But is there some level, like, what is the real world equivalent of that? Okay, so I, I can speak to it a little bit. It's not my area of expertise, but what we can talk about is a field um, called epigenetics. And so what this is, is changes to your DNA. It's not changes to the DNA sequence, but it's changes to, for example, the methylation of your DNA. And it can be as a result of an experience, a traumatic event, for example, can alter your DNA methylation. And that, you know, certain epigenetic changes, not all, but some of them are heritable. So that means they can be passed down to your children. So there is a whole field of study that that looks at this. It's not my area of expertise, but, you know, absolutely, there are these types of changes where it sort of gets uh, improbable is the idea of specific um, memories being implanted, like the idea of, you know, for the, uh, for extinction, the idea of, you know, remembering what the city looks like, that I have a hard time wrapping my head around how that would be encoded genetically. Cool. So, so yeah, once again, like with most Star Trek and with all these episodes, there's this core bit of actual science that they extrapolate from. And in this case, it's epigenetics. Like, that's that's the thing. Cool. Okay. So, wanting to round out our conversation with an episode that I absolutely love because it's <laughs> ridiculous. It is the giant viruses in the Voyager episode Macrocosm, season three, episode 12. Y'all, this is one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> so as a refresher for listeners, this in this episode, there's a virus that has the ability to grow large and it spreads all over the, the ship. So from memory alpha, a unique form of virus that could use its victims' own growth tissues to increase in size so much they could be seen with the naked eye. And that is an understatement, my friends. <laughs> It is like three feet tall. If I can, if I can reiterate the plot, what about what about virus? But big <laughs> can be seen without your glasses. My God, <laughs> it's so wonderful. I love it, and it makes weird buzzing noise like a giant bee. It does. It's so wonderful. So here's the science question: 
And this is like, I, I also love this question because I actually have talked to kids about this, like nieces and nephews in the past always ask things like this. So the question is, why are viruses tiny? Why don't they ever grow larger? Well, viruses are tiny because they are built to infect an individual cell. So they have to be able to enter your body and come into contact with a single cell in your body, which you cannot see with the naked eye. So, of course, the virus has to be even smaller than the size of a cell to be able to infect and attach to a single cell. So that's the the short answer around why viruses are tiny. Mm -hmm. Mm, Cool. And so, Sherry, once a virus <laughs> in this episode, so these viruses do get bigger, would they still behave like a virus would or would they then just become not a virus? Like at what point does a virus not become a virus? <laughs> I mean, I would say at the point that it's able to fly through the air. I, I don't, <laughs> you know, gravity is a thing. You know, viruses don't, you know, aren't self-propelling you know, they have to be carried in droplets or in some kind of vehicle. So, you know, that is sort of the, the big thing. The other thing is that, you know, at that size, the virus is not going to be able to attach itself to a single cell right. and inject its mm-hmm. genetic material. It's, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, for me, thinking about this episode... Now, how could this be plausible? I say, okay, well, the virus would have had to have mutated or adapted such that, you know, internally it contained also copies of the, the microvirus. So if that giant virus is floating around and we saw, you know, it impales its victim. So impaling your victim, you're, you're not going to be able to inject your your genetic material into a single cell. But if through that needle-like projection, you're delivering the micro version of the virus, then mm. you could be successful in infecting. So, you know, that's the only sort of plausible way that this large-sized virus would still be able to infect somebody. Almost like a parasite that's actually laying eggs metaphorically mm-hmm. when delivering mm-hmm. the virus. Absolutely. And that, that, you know, that was my thoughts watching this show. I was like, this is behaving more like a parasite. And when we saw, you know, the abscess on the, uh, on the necks mm-hmm. where it would then come out, you know, mm-hmm. this is, yeah, definitely more, more like a parasite than a virus. One of the things though, that's, I mean, I guess a little bit sciencey that I really love about this episode is that like in a way it's almost like Voyager meets Magic School Bus. Like, <laughs> the whole the whole ship is infected and in a way like reacting like a body would. Like Janeway is like a white blood cell, right? Going to attack this virus or whatever. I don't know if white blood cells do that. A white blood cell by way of Ripley. It's pretty great. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, like and like I just I when she gets all like sweaty and hot and takes off the the main the outer part of the uniform like is that like the ship running a fever you know like this and, and seeing yeah. how the ship is fighting the infection in the way that a human body would fight an infection or maybe wow. I'm just taking the allegory too far no I, that's brilliant <laughs> I feel like that's that's what it is that makes total sense on my old ship this would have never happened. <laughs> I think here in in this episode, again, we have sort of confusion between science terms because we had Mm. Janeway throwing this antigen bomb, right, to to kill the macro virus. And again, and, you you know, you had the doctor in sickbay inject a virus with the antigen and you see the virus explode. So again, (laughs) an antigen will not kill a virus. Mm-hmm. Was anyone else hoping we'd get to see her like with a super soaker full of penicillin or something? <laughs> bleach. Inject it with bleach, guys. Oh, no. <laughs> it's wacky. It's so wacky. I love it. 
I think it's a really interesting idea. But, like, obviously not plausible. Yeah. This is one, I think the reason why I love this one so much is because, like I keep saying, you know, Star Trek Trek episodes have this core bit of science and then extrapolates from there into the sci-fi. This episode is like, here's a tiny speck of science and boom, we're just going (laughs) to make something happen. I love that. I just love how bold it is. It is a little silly, but it's just great. Star Trek is great, y'all. Yeah. (laughs) You could say we're fans. Yeah, we're fans. Thank you so much, Sherry. You are amazing. And thank you so much for lending us your brain and your fandom and and sharing all this amazing info with us on viruses and pandemics. Oh, you're welcome. You know, thanks so much for inviting me to be on the show. I had a great time watching these seven episodes and trying to, you know, read up and research to see, you know, how plausible some of the science was in these episodes. It's been a lot of fun. Yay. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Sherry, is there a place that people can find you on the internet that you would like to share? Sure. People can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Anchored Pisces. Wonderful. Grace, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank. Awesome. And Sue, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter as Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And I'm Aliza Pearl. You can find me at Aliza Pearl on Twitter and Instagram and Aliza on Twitch. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at womenatwarp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.